good morning. How many of you set your clocks back last night? Uh, just checking. You set them forward, not back, right? Forward, spring forward. How many of you came this morning thinking that you're going to be in life group right about now? Anybody here? Got one hand. Anybody else want to join this poor soul? All right. You know, I don't know why they do that, but they do that. It just drives me crazy. Just leave the thing alone, I say. But, uh, you know, it was done for farmers, I think. That's what they say. How many farm in here other than Brother Denny? And anybody else? You know, Brother Denny, we did this all for you, I think. So uh, count yourself blessed. Don't worry. We have not set the clock back right up here. There's a big clock that you can't see. It says 10 o'clock. And I know that the elephant in the room, the game is at 1. So that means we have, by this clock, three hours. <laughs> yeah. Go Shocks. I mean, who of us is not rooting for the Shockers? I just want to let you know I've got a visa uh, when I first came with Intrust Bank and has a Shocker on it. Uh, you know, the, the little Wooshock guy. And, and I tell people when I use that, you know, when I go to the stores, I was a fan before they started winning, okay? So, uh, you know, it's amazing how winners just draw fans, isn't it? Man. But uh, who of us is not a fan of the WSU uh, basketball team and their accomplishment? It's just great to be a part of that and uh, to watch them. I like doing it at home. I've got a, a really nice 55-inch screen TV. Brother Andy and I were talking about that earlier. Uh, you've got a restroom close by. You've got drinks right here. You don't have to deal with the crazies and the traffic and all of that, and it's cheaper that way. So we will be out in three hours, so don't you worry in time for the game. Brother Andy already advised me, said, Pastor, I've never been rude to you before, but if you're not through by 1 o'clock, I'm leaving. But anyway, uh, we're going to talk about an interesting subject today, and you see this, the, uh, the passage that we're going to be dealing with is in Luke chapter 12 today, Luke chapter 12, and uh, it's an interesting passage, and if you'll see right there, uh, verse 15 is basically what I want to read just a minute as we begin our study, verse 15. But the title of our message this morning is Investing Wisely. We are to invest wisely, and we are to optimize then our eternal portfolio. Somebody said, well, I don't think I have a portfolio. Everybody does. Uh, you just don't know it. It's a, a portfolio is simply one of those things that sort of um, helps you sort of understand what all that you have done in order to invest all of your assets. And all of us should have at least some knowledge of that portfolio, right, Brother David? That's right. He's, he's our finance guy. You, you do have one whether you realize it or not, and some of us know about that and say, well, I don't have many assets. You know, the reality is you have more assets and more investments than you think. And all of us should be aware of those investments and those assets. And we all have a portfolio. But the portfolio that I'm talking about today is not an earthly portfolio. I'm talking about an eternal portfolio. And that you and I are to optimize the investment on that eternal portfolio. Because one of these days, we're going to stand before the Father and we're going to lay out our portfolio before him. And he's going to evaluate how we have invested what he's entrusted to us and our stewardship of those investments. And so I want to look at one passage, verse 15, and it says, in the middle of the passage, look up there, it says, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for this wonderful scripture that reminds us that we all have an eternal portfolio. And we are to optimize that investment of that portfolio to its maximum yield 
for your glory, for your honor, and for the eternal purpose for which you gave it. We are investors of what belongs to you. We are stewards of what belongs to you. And I pray that you would instill within us this desire to invest wisely. But more importantly, God, it's going to take on our part a discipline because we are by nature covetous people. By nature, we are greedy, we are hoarders. By nature, we want more than we can ever use. And I pray that you would help us battle the world's influence and flesh's influence upon our lives so that we not hoard nor should we be greedy about the things that you've entrusted to our care and that we'd be good stewards and invest wisely and invest in that eternal portfolio. So Lord, use this time to instruct us and encourage us in that respect we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you take a look at verse 15, there's a word called covetousness, and that's not really a word that we use a lot today, and so the word that we mostly use for that today is called greedy. Who of here does not know what greed means? I think most of us do. We know what greediness looks like. We know the people around us that we might identify as greedy, and a greediness simply means, as I found in the Webster's Dictionary, it means a selfish desire and an excessive desire for more of something that is needed. It is the excessive desire for more of something than what is needed or what is necessary. Now, we, we, we sometimes define those necessary things and those needed things, but the reality is that most Americans have a definition of what is necessary and what is needed that far exceeds any other civilization in the world that we live in today. And if there's ever was a time, I think, in the history of the United States of America in battling this thing called covetousness or greediness, it's today. We live in a culture of hedonist. Hedonism is simply those who are in the constant pursuit of pleasure. And in order to, as to aspire to this insatiable appetite for pleasure, we will and we will experience and we will dish out an incredible, insatiable greediness to attain more and more and more and more. How big of a house do we need? How new of a car most we must always have? What, what kind of clothes should we strive to wear? What kind of positions should we work for? Uh, how much is enough? And how much more do we need? I don't know if you've taken a walk through here in the church, but uh, most of us who live here, uh, mostly six days a week, um, we know that there are rooms in this church where we have stored things that we somehow have convinced ourselves that at some point we're going to need it somewhere down the future. How many of you have at least more than one room like that in your house? And you're thinking spring is a good time for a garage sale. The problem is most of us go to garage sales to buy things cheaply that we don't need that we'll eventually put in stories that later on we might in turn then sell at a garage sale. I mean, all of us in this room battle with greediness. We're all greedy people. If you're comfortable with that, turn to your person next to you and say, I'm not greedy, but you are. We're all greedy. I mean, we come into the world... And, and, and not only do we have this fallen nature called greed, but we train our children to be greedy. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have Easter, aren't we? 
And uh, before we have Easter, we're going to have a weekend. We're going to invite a bunch of children over here in the park, and they're going to hunt for Easter eggs. And we teach greediness by hunting Easter eggs. Not only are the children hurrying around trying to get as many as they can, but after they've got more than they need, we parents are saying, get more, get more. Here's one over here. There's one over here. There's one over here. Right? I mean, we're teaching that to our children. We, by nature, battle greed. And some of us, well, well, you know, I'm so spiritual that I don't battle greed. Yes, you do. Our world that we live in teaches us that we are to be consumers. And as consumers, we are to hoard, we are to, to invest, we are to attain not only what we think we need, but far and beyond and above more than what we can need. I mean, I've got a, I've got a, a, a room in my basement that's got stuff in it that I haven't seen since I moved in this house. I like a clean garage. I don't like junk in my garage. And I'm constantly emptying stuff out and bringing it to the dumpster to get rid of stuff that's there. And yet we continue to persist to buy more, to throw away more, to attain more, to hoard more, and to keep more. That is also true when it comes time for the things that God has entrusted to us for the investment in his kingdom. And we see in this passage in Luke chapter 12, this 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 record of, of Luke's gospel in which he is helping us see in this teaching of Jesus that there is a particular man that has a problem that all of us have a problem with, and it's called greed. So let's take a look at the passage in Luke chapter 12, and let's sort of dissect it a little bit. I know the, this, it, it, if for those in the back, I apologize. It's kind of small, and that's to encourage you, if you can't see it, to move up front. So if you can't see it, my advice is to move up front. <clears throat> anyway, Brother Dorian, you can move up front if you'd like to. But anyway, here we go. Let's look at the problem of greed. Let's look at the problem of greed. Notice in chapter 12 of the Gospel according to Luke, he says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now notice in this, this request... This request is made from a man, and this man is not necessarily identified. It says in the text, someone in the crowd. There's no specification. There's no identification. There's no name here, just someone in the crowd. And there's a lot of speculation as to who this person is and who he represented. Was he a disciple? Was he not a disciple? Was he someone who is seeking to be a disciple? There's a lot of speculation, but the reality is that no one knows who this person is. He's not identified by the Gospel of Luke and the writer named Luke as to the name of the individual. And I think he does that for a reason, because he wants all of us to read this and insert our names here, because this could be, in reality, any one of us in this room. And so his identity is somewhat anonymous. Notice that he interrupts Christ. Now, Christ is in the process of teaching those who have gathered to listen to his teaching. And he's teaching not only his disciples, but teaching those who are interested in following him and interested in becoming disciples. And this man sort of steps out of the crowd, interrupts Christ, and he invites Jesus then to arbitrate their family squabble. And he says, hey, my brother will not divide the inheritance with me. Now, 
The inheritance in the Judeo tradition during the time of Jesus, when a father died in the family, the, the inheritance among these two brothers would divide it in thirds. The older brother would get two-thirds, and the younger brother would get one-third. We don't know if this is the older brother or the younger brother, but more than likely it's the younger brother because he's upset that the older brother is not giving him his fair share of the inheritance, and he's upset with that. And all of a sudden, he has decided, well, Jesus is a, is a guy about fairness, and because he seems to be a fair guy, I'm going to ask him and invite him to arbitrate in our family squabble. Now, how many of us, don't lift your hand, have invited Jesus in, uh, into our family squabbles? And so that's what he's doing. Now, notice Jesus now rebukes the man because of his question, he says in verse 14, but Jesus, he said to the man, he says to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Notice that Jesus is very direct in the text. This man steps out of the crowd. He asks the question, and Jesus is addressing the man who's asking the question. He doesn't address the crowd. He's teaching the crowd. He's teaching the congregation, those disciples and those would-be disciples, and maybe some who are simply just curious. They're not really meaning to be disciples, but they're just curious, so they're there. He's addressing everyone. The man steps out, raises his hand, raises his voice, asks Jesus to become a part of this arbitration that's necessary obviously the courts have not done their fair their fair job and so he's asking Jesus to do that and he identifies him as man he's speaking to the man he's not speaking to the crowd now he's very direct he looks him in the eyes and he addresses the man so this is a rebuke that is intended for this specific man it's not intended for the crowd but for him haven't you felt like that sometimes you've been in a crowd God has spoken individually to your heart and has convicted you of something that needs changing and transformation in your life. And Jesus now becomes the Savior, the Master. He's rebuking the man. And notice, he calls him man. I find that interesting, don't you? The man already by Luke, according to Luke, is not identified. And so Jesus doesn't identify the man. He simply calls him man. Hey, man. Hey, dude. Hey, man. Why does he do that? Well, he's saying to this man as he steps out of the crowd, asking Jesus to arbitrate in their family squabbles, he's identifying him as a carnal man, a fleshly man, a man who is living in the natural because all that seems to preoccupy him is his inheritance. He's not interested in eternal rewards or an eternal inheritance or an eternal portfolio. All that he's driven by and interested in are earthly possessions. And he's angry because he's not able to attain these things. Now, before this passage, as Jesus is teaching the congregation that's there that's assembled to hear him, Jesus has been teaching a, a passage on trusting God. The whole message has been about trust God. And this man, had he been listening, would have understood, I need to trust God with this family matter, this thing in inheritance, and just trust God to take care of it. But I rather would not refuse to, I don't want to trust Jesus, so I'm going to, you know, trust God. So I'm going to ask Jesus to arbitrate for me. I'm going to take matters into my own hands instead of rather trusting God. So he says, you're living in the natural, man. You're not living in the supernatural, you're, 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 you're too obsessed with possessions. And that's really the danger for all of us, isn't it? We get so possessed with possessions and things and the temporary. He says, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter 
arbitrator over you. Notice that his decision is very decisive. Jesus is not unconcerned with this man's plight or nor the inheritance. He's not belittling the man. He's simply reminding the man, if you've been listening to me, you would have known that I'm not here about the temporary. I have come to settle eternal matters. My mission is the salvation of the lost. My mission is to set people on a course of investing in the eternal portfolio for their lives. The, the things that really matter, the things that make a significant difference in bringing God honor and glory and the significant things that build up the kingdom and enable and empower you to present your portfolio before the Lord and say, look what I've done with what you've entrusted to me. And you bring this squabbly family matter about an earthly temporary inheritance that's not why i've come that's not why i'm here and as a matter of fact not only that's not why i'm here but that's not why you should be here that's not what your life should be all about and notice then in the rebuke then jesus turns and he says i want to give you a realignment a reassessment i want you to to refocus your life notice what he says then and he said to them take care be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Notice in the, uh, in, in the realignment, he's very inclusive because he is earlier he's talking to the man who stepped out to ask him a question, and he takes this opportunity now not just to address the man, but he addresses everyone who's in the congregation who's there, everyone listening. He speaks to them, and why does he do that? Because he is well aware of the pressures of the culture that they're living in and the, the internal pressures of our, our fallen nature that all of us have tendencies and we're all prone to be influenced by others and by our fallen nature to be covetousness and to live co covetous lives. And so he's, he's addressing all who are present. Hey, everyone here, this is not just his issue, not just his problem, but every one of us has this problem. So he addresses all of them. And what does he say? He says, I want you to take initiative what's the initiative he says take care this interesting the word take care simply means to pay close attention stay alert stay awake play close attention because you see i th i think most of us if we're not alert, if we're not paying attention, if we're not closely watching our lives and how we're investing our lives and how we're building our portfolio, we may have a tendency then to get sidetracked. If we're not careful, we're not paying close attention, we'll, we'll, we'll quickly shift from an eternal investment, an eternal portfolio, and get swept up by the tide of our culture and be swept in by the internal struggles as well into a temporary, earthly culture. So we've got to pay close attention. Don't snooze on this. Don't close your eyes. It's important where we look. We, we saw that earlier in, in other studies that we've done so far. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus. We talked about that, didn't we? Where we look and how we fix our attention on the things is incredibly important in how we invest our lives. And if we are looking at the wrong things, if we're, if we're evaluating our lives by other people rather than the Lord and by the standard of the Lord, we can quickly shift our focus of our lives and, and eventually squander the time, the talent, and the treasure that God has given us. So he says, I want you to take care, but notice he says, and to be on your guard, to be on your guard, to protect. It has the idea of conveying there is a, there's a battle, there's a war going on. He says, 
be on your guard. Be alert. Because if you're not at, at attention, if you're not alert, if you're not watching, if you're not visual, visible, if you're not watching where you look, if you're not on guard, you're going to become greed's next victim. Because there are people that are stronger than you who thought that they could overcome it, that they didn't need to battle it, that they needed to, need to watch out for it, and they have become victim like this guy. He says, hey, hey, see this guy over here? You need to watch out or you're going to become like him. Uh, not me. Yeah. All of us could be subject to being like him at any moment, any time. So he says, I want you to be on your guard against greed. Notice what he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Live with the intentionality of your life and do not measure your success by your possessions. I mean, that's how our culture measures success. What's your title? I mean, you think that pastors are immune to that? That's not true. You would think that pastors are immune from, 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 from a measurement or a standard that would be more spiritual than, well, how big is your church? How many members do you have? What's the size of your budget? How many were in tenants last week in your church? How many baptisms did you have? I mean, what are the size of your buildings? I mean, even among pastors, there's a culture almost of, of comparisons that, that are unspiritual and unfounded biblically. And, and if we have trouble like that, because we're no different than you, then you too have a problem with that. All of us, if we're not careful, will live our lives as if our lives consist primarily of what we possess. And it's interesting that what we possess eventually possesses us. I remember not long ago when our children were small and we, we bought them a swing set and we put it, I put it up in the backyard. And after I put all the nuts and bolts on the swing set, you know, there's always a couple left over. You know what I'm talking about? And you look and you don't know where they go and you go, oh, well. <laughs> but there's a little statement at the end of the instructions that says, tighten bolts weekly. What we possessed now possesses us. And that's what our possessions, if we're not careful, will do. What we seek to possess will eventually possess us. And we'll spend so much time on that which is temporary and less on what is eternal. And the end result is catastrophic for the Christ follower. So we all have the problem. Now notice the parable that Jesus gives in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plenty. Notice the condition that he describes this farmer. This farmer is a very, uh, is a very blessed farmer. He has incredible abundance. Why do you know that? He has a lot of land. It, it describes him as very, very rich. And it also describes him as someone who has just had an, um, an abundant bumper crop. I mean, God has blessed him with this incredible crop during this particular time of the harvest. And so we take a look at the condition of the man. He, and, and so most of us say, you know, I'd like to be able to live that kind of life. I mean, he's living the abundant life in material things. And what Jesus is trying to convey here is that this man has literally everything that he could possibly already, he's already got everything he needs. There's nothing that he doesn't need that he doesn't already possess. But because he already has everything that he needs, because he's a wealthy and he lives in abundance, God has blessed him with even more. Would you wish you were like that? 
God's given him more. Now notice the confusion of the man in verse 17. And he begins to think to himself, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He's a little bit stunned. He's a little bit bewildered. He doesn't really know what to do. He doesn't have enough places to store his crop. Obviously, this is probably before co-op days. And so he had to build his own barns, barns to store his own stuff. And he said, my barns are already full. And there's no way in the world that I can store this anywhere. I'm, I'm bewildered. I'm perplexed. I don't know what to do. Notice how many times in this text, as we read this parable, how many times he says, I and my. And it's almost as if this guy is leaving God completely out of the equation. He never asks God. He never goes to the word or to the scripture to determine, all right, God, you've, you've blessed me with this abundance. Now, how do I or what do I do with it? And he says, how do I do this? But notice the choice that he makes. And he said to himself, I will do this, and I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Notice the boldness of the man. I will do. Gives no regard No desire to say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? This is what I'm going to do. He decides to sit in the driver's seat, take the steering wheel, make the choices for himself about what to do with his abundance. And so he now, in his boldness, declares, it's mine, and I will do with what is mine what I want to do with it. And now notice what he does. He goes into a building campaign. Sound like a church, doesn't it? I'm going to build bigger barns so I can store my bumper crop. And so that's what he does. He tears down the old ones and builds larger ones. And he stores all of his grain and all of his goods in now these larger barns. Imagine the cost of all that. And he says in verse 19, notice his boasting in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You see in this text, he believed that he was going to live a long time. Hey, I'm, I'm in good health. I got a bumper crop. I've got an abundance. I've got it all in storage now. I'm going to live a long time. If you take a look at the text, not only do I believe I'm going to live a long time, I, I believe that I'm going to be able to, as I live this long life, live a life of luxury for a long time. Not only that, I believe that, that I can relax. Sounds to me like retirement, doesn't it to you? I've got my barn so full, and I'm going to live such a long life, and I've got so much money and, all, and so much stuff stored, I'm never going to have to work again. So I can just now retire. I can relax. I can take it easy, that is, until the stock market falls, like I did a couple years ago. And then notice in the text, he said, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. That's a hedonist life. I'm going to live now for the rest of my life. I've worked hard for pleasure. That's the American way of life today. Seek whatever you have to do to satisfy your hunger for pleasure. The only problem is that hunger for pleasure never goes away. And no matter how many times you feed it, it never gets full. Notice the consequences that Jesus says in the text. But God said to him, God now has a different perspective here. Hey, dude, you've lived your life this way. It's been the wrong way. God has a different perspective. 
God steps into the scene, Jesus says. Look what he calls him. Fool. Fool. You egotistical, arrogant human being. There are no children in here, right? We have children, they're not this Sunday. They're out there. The word that I want to say here is a word that most parents don't like me to say when their children are in the room, so the word is stupid. Stupid. I've got a recording with our kids on it, and uh, they were not allowed to say that word, and so they were doing a recording, and uh, we heard the recording a couple of days later, and uh, we didn't really hear all the conversation, but somebody said, ah, you said the S word, ah, you said the S word, and somebody said, what word, what word? Stupid, you said stupid, I'm going to tell mom. Some of you were thinking about another S word, weren't you? They were not allowed to say that word. And Jesus calls him stupid. You egotistical, arrogant dummy. You fool. A fool is someone that thinks they're smart, that are dumber than a doornail. Because you... I, me, my store, live a long time, lead a hedonist life, eat, drink, and be merry and relax. Man, I got plenty of time. He says, you're a fool if that's what you think. I wonder how many fools there are in this world today. How many times have we lived foolishly and squandered what belongs to someone else? Fool. This night, notice, this night... There's a time frame there. He got through building these barns and put all his food and his goods in there. And he said, I'm going to live a long time. And Jesus says, God's going to come and say, this night. That doesn't leave a lot of time. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He's saying the consequences are this guy lived foolishly. But he, he's about to learn there's an accountability day. This very night, he's going to die, and he's going to stand before God, and he's going to give an account of his life, and God's going to ask you, did you know my son? And if he didn't, you've wasted your life. And if he did and squandered that which God entrusted to him in this abundance, then he's lived foolishly. Because why? He lost everything. He lost everything. Now, some of you think, well, what about the inheritance thing? This doesn't reference inheritance here. The idea in the picture here is that this man loses everything. Because, you see, he did all that for himself. He didn't do it for his family. He did it for himself. And because he did it for himself, when he dies, he loses everything. I've said this before. You never see a U-Haul trailer following a hearse. Unless you're a king and died in Egypt, you don't die with all your toys with you. You leave them here and you lose it all. You lost everything. Now, what's the principle that Jesus is teaching here? Notice in the next verse, verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Interesting, that little word so is a huge word. Don't quickly read over that. That word so means that Jesus is about to say, now based upon all that I have said, so. You know, my children sometimes when you would try to scold them, they go, so? Wasn't a good thing to say. It meant the wrath of dad was about to be poured out on them. 
But here Jesus uses in a good way, after everything I have said, now I am about to tell you that this man limited his future. In other words, I'm about to give you a promise. This is not a prediction. This is a promise, a promise in regard to the kind of future that this man is going to have. So is the one. Notice he's addressing now the man again. He's gone man to man, congregation, now back to the man. So you, the one who lays up treasure for himself, he's lost his focus. Notice he says, once you limit your future, you limit your future because you lose your focus. You're focused on the wrong things. You are focused on the temporary, not the eternal. And because you've lost your focus, you lost the foresight in knowing that one day, someday, you are going to stand accountable to God and have to get an account of how you invested your life. Now, as we close, I want to give quickly seven things that I want us to learn from all of this. And I mean quick. So you, if you want to write these down, you better do it quick. Seven things. Here they are. Investing tips from a foolish investor. We can learn, learn a lot of things from foolish people. You can learn a lot of things from smart people. But let's learn some things from this foolish guy. Number one, we need to concentrate on God's abundance. Concentrate on God's abundance. This man never attributed his abundance to God. Never gave God glory, never gave God credit, never once said, hey, all of this has been given to me by the divine sovereign hand of God. You know, I think when we fail to see that it's God who gave us what we have, we'll never invest it the way he intended. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm the one that worked it. I'm the one that did it. I had the brains. I, no, you're not. Any ability... And any achievement that you ever accomplish in life is because of God's favor and God's blessing. And so we need to concentrate on God's abundance. Secondly, I need to count my blessing as an opportunity to invest. I need to count my blessing as an opportunity to invest in bringing God glory, and not only bringing God glory, but in the use of his kingdom. God blesses us not so that we can increase our living lifestyle, but to invest in kingdom purposes. Because the reality is most everybody in this room has everything we could possibly need. I know a pastor who, uh, after a number of years, uh, has not asked and did not get a raise in his church. And someone asked, that is not a good thing for a pastor to do. For a pastor should always get a raise. To which the response is, we have everything we need. Why do we need a raise to buy more? Somebody said, well, I could use a little more. Really? How much more do you need? And if you were to get more, what would you spend it on? Well, I'd get a bigger house. Do you need a bigger house? You know, we lived in an apartment for 18 months, a little two-bedroom, 1,100-square-foot apartment or something like that. And we put a lot of our junk in storage. <laughs> and it was amazing to me how much, how much stuff we learned we didn't really need. And then after we built the house that we're in, 
there's this insatiable desire on our part to scale down from what we have because we've got more than, I mean, how much room do two people need? Okay, our, our grandchildren are going to visit this Christmas and we'll have about probably 26 in our house and it won't be big enough. But my soul, do you, big a, do you build a house big enough for 26 people every three years to, to, to come to? Or do you uh, pawn them out on church people, you know, so they can come visit us for a couple hours during the day? I mean, how much, how much room do you need? How many cars do we need? How many ski boats do we need? I, I mean, we always need more and more and more and more and more. Some of you guys, how many guns do you need? Oh, I'm getting personal, aren't I? Yeah. How many guns do we need? Okay. Hodge, how many do we need? Never mind. I mean, how many do we need? I mean, seriously. We're a bunch of hoarders. And unless there's a war, and I'm not saying there won't ever be, you can only fire one, maybe two at a time. How much do we need? Number three, consider God's will on how you invest what God has given you. This guy never one time ever asked God, God, how do you want me to invest this abundance? I've already got everything I need. I've already got barns galore stored with everything out of Now, this is to do what? I had a guy one time uh, when I pastored a church a couple of churches back. He was already a multimillionaire. He didn't need any more money, and he didn't really want to retire at 55. And he asked me, he said, Pastor, will you give me some advice on what I need to do with my life? I said, what are you good at? He said, I'm good at making money. That's what he said. He's good at making money. He's good at playing Monopoly. And he, that's what he did for a living. He played Monopoly with his life. And he was very blessed by God because he's a very generous man. But at a certain point in his life, he said, how much more do I need? What do I do? I said, what are you good at? I'm good at making money. I said, then continue to make money. He said, well, what do I do with the money that I don't need? I said, give it to God. And that's what he did. And so we have a tendency, I think, to find out what are we good at? And how much do we need? Number four, we need to commit to God's standard of success. Don't measure your life by someone else's life. Don't go home on the way home and in your car that has 241,000 miles like mine does, and it's got duct tape over here by the side where my arm was. I know it looks rank, but it still runs well, and I'm not going to buy one probably till it croaks. And every now and then I'm sitting at a stoplight and I'm starting to look at the possibility of buying a new car. And I say, no, do I need that car? I mean, somebody said you should have bought one maybe 140,000 miles ago. But it still runs good. And I try to keep it clean so it looks newer. Anyway. Number four, we need to combat every covetous tendency that we have and if you think you don't battle greed you need to wake up because all of us do now it may not be greed about money but it may be greed about food it may be greed about guns there's a lot of things in our lives that if we're not careful we'll have this insatiable appetite to more and more and more and more and we need to watch that because very closely because that we have a fallen nature within us and it's a part of our DNA it's a part of the culture that we rub elbows with every day in this consumer mentality that says more is better and at some point, we have to stop and say, how much more do we need? Number six, we need to conquer fear by trusting God. 
Jesus had just got through this incredible, beautiful description about trusting God. This man who was there, who heard the teaching, interrupted Jesus in a moment where he probably didn't need interruption, said, I'm having a problem trusting God because God's not answering my prayers and my brother's not giving me what I need. And and we sometimes, I think, have to just trust God. I've said this before here when I came. We took pride at one time in our church and said we had a million dollars in reserves. And my, my comment to that is we're a nonprofit organization. And I ask, who are we trusting? Our reserves or are we trusting God? Six and a half years ago, almost seven now, we've been slowly exhausting that, that stockpile of money to the point where, you know what? Now we've got to trust God. And some of us are panicked about that. Trust God? But trust God? Yes. Because God will give us what we have need of and nothing more. And if God doesn't want us in this building anymore and we have to shut off the lights and move to another part of the building, I say maybe maybe God didn't give it to us because he's saying we never needed this building. I'm not sure. I don't think that's what it is. But we have to apply that not only corporately as a church, but individually. How Can I really trust God with my future? I mean, I know there's a couple of young adults that are sending foreign missions in here, and you're not sure where the money's going to come from. I've watched my son have to raise almost $200,000 in order to go to to Montreal and have watched church and church and person after person. Somehow, unknowing to him, God has provided the funds. And God had to teach him to live by faith. And we had some talks, and he was panicky about how was it going to go to Montreal without the money that was necessary. And, And it was a battle for him. But just not, is it a battle for him? It's a battle for me. It's a battle for you. It's a battle for all of us. We've got to provide our little nest egg because, you know, that's what we put our trust in. Really? Really? And then lastly, we need to concentrate on eternal things, not temporary things. Where's our real focus? Where's our focus? What are we concentrating on? Can you lose eternal treasures? That's a question. Can we lose eternal treasures? Can we lose eternal treasures? And if you're investing in eternal portfolio... You can lose all that this world has in temporary things and not lose a single investment in eternal things. And I guarantee you, you may live 80, 90 years here in this life, but you're going to live a lot longer in heaven. And some of us are not far from heaven today. That's not a prediction here, okay? But we've got to live not for the dot for the bottom line this world is not our home for one of these days the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we will be forever with the Lord let's take these tips from a foolish investor and let's invest wisely so as we close here's the final question Are you investing wisely? Are you investing your life wisely? Or one of these days, like in the parable, you will die or Christ will return and you will stand before God and you will give an account of what he's entrusted to you. 
And how will you answer to the call of stewardship? How have you lived your life? How have you invested your life? How have you invested those resources? Because all along, he says, they were mine. I entrusted them to you. Now, what did you do with what I gave you? Let's invest wisely. Let's pray. Good morning. We have the great opportunity this morning to begin our worship service with the ordinance of baptism. And I want to introduce you to my friend Marissa. And Marissa is coming today to give her testimony of her salvation and be identified on Jesus' team. And I know that some of Marissa's family is here this morning. So if you don't mind, would you stand and just let us honor you as we honor her as well. Marissa, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? Yeah. And are you ready to be identified as being on Jesus' team? Yeah. Because of that decision this morning, it's my privilege to get to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. Yeah. 